Welcome to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff, and uh, we've got a full house today. We have Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, as usual, and we also have very special guest, Jesse Sanchez, our international prospect guru, who we have on with us today because the international top 30 prospects list just came out last night. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, fellas. Hello, everybody. Good to have you, Jesse. It's always like exciting time uh, a year for you. I mean, it's like us with the draft. It's it's markedly different than we're used to. But uh, how's it feel to have another top thirty international list filed and posted on the site? And how much work do you wind up putting into that each year? You know, and I think you guys can speak to you know the challenges that come with putting together a list. It's it's a year long deal, or sometimes longer than that. You're kind of you know you're speaking with people all over the world. In my case. Um, from you know Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Panama, um, all over Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, international directors, scouts, bird dogs on the ground, parents. Um, it's it's a pretty thorough process to get through it, and it's it is definitely gratifying. And and I, one thing that I really enjoy and I really like doing this is give us the uh, fans a chance to follow these kids at age sixteen when they sign, fifteen, sixteen when they sign, and kind of know they are in the academies there and then seeing them when they make it to the minor leagues and kind of make their their journey through the minor leagues and hopefully to the big leagues and you know just telling those stories of these you know all the latino players from all these different countries and it's, it's gratifying on a personal level but you know as a baseball fan and as a baseball person you know i really just love that we have some baseball to talk about and and, and sharing the stories is just uh, really a personal and important to me well, Jesse, I'm uh, I'm trying to hide my disappointment because Jason said full house, and I thought John Stamos and Bob Saget were on, but um, but I'll move on. Well, we can let Jim, Jim play the role of. Uh... I try. I've been mistaken for Bob Saget outside the MLB Network, outside the residence in near the MLB Network studios. So I, I can play the role of Bob Saget today, where Bob Saget is known to to hang out. So that was you know it made a lot of sense. Good bagels, uh, Jesse. Just we, um, we digress, but, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot you know, on our end, just in terms, uh, like everyone has, how the, the shutdown has, has impacted uh, our world. Uh, we'll talk about the drafts a little bit later on in our podcast, but how has what has gone on around the world and particularly within the world of baseball uh, impacted, you know, what's happening just in terms of, you know, normally the signing period would start July 2nd and we, you'd start beating everybody uh, with, with breaking news on who's signing with who and, and it, it gets exciting and, and all that. But how much turmoil is there in, in that part of this, of the baseball world because, uh, because of the coronavirus? Well, I'll start by saying, you know, the MLB and players union, they, you know, they kind of agree to to possibly delay the start of the international signing period. It usually starts on July 2nd and carries all the way through, you know, June 15th of the next year. But, you know, that could be pushed back until January. Uh, there's still some unknown there. Um, just like the rest of the world, uh, you know, the international baseball world, there's just uncharted waters here. So we're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Uh, what are the bonuses going to look like? What's the, you know, start date going to look like but specifically in the dominican republic i, was, I want to touch on some of these different countries uh it's the dr is a complicated and complex country on its own on every 
day it is, but you know, you add something like the COVID-19, this coronavirus in it, and it just makes it even trickier. I mean, there's a curfew there from like 5 p.m. to 6 a.m. Everything's closed except for, I think, the grocery stores, banks, pharmacies, hospitals, uh, restaurants are not serving. Um, and people are just trying to survive just like everybody else in the world. And from a baseball standpoint, you know, MLB has established guidelines. I think you guys have probably addressed some of this stuff because it's, it's the same thing with the domestic side. You know, these kids or team prospects have to practice by themselves. A lot of stuff is done by video, uh, by, you know, phone, by text. And it, it, it makes it struggle to, uh, to stay in shape, to, you know, get their work in. But I've, I've spoken with several people in the Dominican Republic, and what I found out is they – it's, they're having players live at the academy and they have mostly that's a Venezuelan players, but have some players live at the academy and they sent all their players who were at the Dominican Academy or most of their players who live in the Dominican, you know, they went home. So when they go home, it's the responsibility of, you know, the staff there to, you know, check on these kids each day to check on these uh, prospects each day that the ones that who have already signed who and who are working out, in the Dominican academies for each team. So you'll have a, you know, a coordinator call, have a list of five guys and the he'll call and check on his five guys. And then there's a, another coach who's a, you know, has another five guys, a secretary has five guys. And, you know, they're just trying to keep these kids active. You know, they're trying to make sure they're safe. They, they want these uh, young men to know that there's a support system there. Um, obviously, they're still dealing with the same thing everybody in the world is dealing with. You know, they're concerned with their safety. You know, they're you know, they think about, you know, the parents and their siblings who have to go to work. The reality is, you know, a lot of people have to leave home. You can't always just stay home. Uh, they have to go home, have to go earn money. So, you know, they worry about the parents. They think about family members. They worry about uh, how much training these kids are getting, you know, how well they're eating. Because one thing about being a, a prospect or, you know, even being a, a minor leaguer or a big leaguer, maybe less of the minors, these uh, guys at the academy are fed really well. You know, they have so many meals a day um, and it's almost all you can eat. And I don't know if that exists everywhere at home and that's domestic or, you know, foreign, you know. Uh, so that I think any people who have college kids coming home can, can speak to that, you know, can speak to, you know, needing the food around. And so it's just, just a, a series of issues that the Dominican Republic, as a whole, and then as you know, as you know, baseball intersects with that, it just creates. But I, I think talking to different people, what they're telling me is there's been some success with guys using their drills at home. You know, they'll send videos and tutorials, and and kids are following them. And um, one thing that I discovered, and it's, it's been pretty cool to hear, is uh, a lot of these prospects are are taking online classes. You know, they're the the kids at these academies are trying to get their their GED or the next great equivalency. Um, so they're, they're kind of taking advantage of that opportunity there. Um, like I said, it's, it's complicated in the Dominican Republic and it, it's affecting every way of life from, you know, little leagues, which are really important. And baseball is an important part of the Dominican Republic. It is, you know, part of the lifeblood there. So you think about not only are not the professionals training, but the little league kids are not, uh, working out. Um, and it definitely impacts them. Um, businesses, obviously, trainers have been impacted. Uh, you think about the trainers in the Dominican Republic. They, they take in these young players at probably 12 or 13 years old, 
and they, you know, they ra- they basically raise them, they feed them, they train them into baseball, and they use the money from you know July second or you know different signing periods to kind to you know pay for that type type of stuff. So those questions are when that money is going to come in, how are they going to function? Again, it's just a lot of similarities to what's happening in the United States and across the globe. There's just uncharted territory in the Dominican Republic. Uh, but uh, everybody seems to, you know, be in good spirits, obviously. Um, different people handle the crisis in different ways. But I think uh, baseball has provided a good distraction for the young men there in the Dominican Republic. It's obviously different, but, uh, you know, you really can't take the love away from uh, baseball in the Dominican Republic. So, you know, that's always cool to see. Jesse, you know, one of the, the biggest differences, I think, between the draft and the international, you know, July 2nd crop, although I guess we may not call it the July 2nd crop this year, um, is that, you know, teams, while they do have some history with the players, you know, missed out on a chance to scout guys this spring. With international guys, a lot of these guys have agreed to deals year, two years in advance. So it's that part isn't maybe as affecting who teams will sign because they've already figured that out. But how much potential for chaos could there be if – I mean, like, as you noted, we, we don't really know the details of, of when this is going to be. Are they going to reduce bonus pools for teams? But considering that that most teams and top players have deals in place already, how much potential chaos could we see unleashed if there are cutbacks on the international bonus pools or, or some other alteration that significantly changes the money these guys are going to get? Right. And, 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 right, Jim. And this is really uncharted waters, uncharted territory here. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, teams and trainers, they, they work ahead. Sometimes they work a, a year ahead or work two years ahead. I'm focusing on on a player and nailing down a player. And not to say that money is is counted and spent, but, you know, families, organizations, they, everybody has a budget. You know, teams have budgets. Trainers have budgets. Uh, families have budgets. And this is not something that they, anybody saw coming. So, any kind of disruption to any type of budget is going to has the potential to cause problems, to cause chaos. And, you know, it's happening here, you know, with businesses, it's happening, you know, in families here. And, and the same thing, I think it's happening in the international world. Uh, everybody works under structured, you know, business plans, under structured budgets and any kind of changes to those budgets, you know, have potential to cause serious problems. And, and the reality is we don't have the answers. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know, uh, when baseball is going to start, uh, we're not sure, you know, when the uh, domestic draft is going to be. We're not stir- sure when the international signing period is going to be or what those bonuses are going to look like. So, you know, there are definitely people concerned about what's going to happen, um, where where they go from here. But you're just kind of I, talking to them. They're just really paying attention to the news. They're trying to keep in contact with teams, trying to figure figure out what's happening. But the reality is there just aren't any answers. So, um, I guess going back to the main point, yeah, everybody has budgets, and when those budgets are disrupted, there is potential for big problems. Jesse, uh, a lot of great information on on what's going on with these kids right now, and just a lot of uh, background information on on how this whole process works and, and what these kids go through. Um, let's dig into the actual list now. Um, so this is uh, this is the I believe ninth list that that we've put out now ninth international top prospects list that we put out 
Uh, it looks pretty similar to a lot of the others in terms of the composition of the list. Uh, a lot of shortstops, uh, few players at other infield positions, few pitchers, um, mostly consistent of players from the Dominican and Venezuela, uh, some Cubans in there, and including the number one player overall on the list, uh, Yoel Cespedes. Um Let's talk about him a little bit. So three of the top 10 players are Cuban players who are actually already eligible to sign, um, but looking like they will likely sign in the next period. Um, Yoelki Cespedes, number one, followed by four 16-year-old shortstops, two from Venezuela, two from the Dominican. Um, then we have another Cuban at number six, Pedro Leon, a 21-year-old outfielder. Then a couple of Venezuelan catchers, uh, then a kind of uh, an outlier in uh, at number nine, a 17 year old shortstop out of Cuba, which is somewhat unusual because you, the Cubans that we see on this list are typically a little older than that. Uh, and then at number 10 is uh, Shawn Polanco, a 16 year old outfielder from the Dominican. Um, this is the fewest Dominicans we've ever had in the top 10. There are three. Uh, and the two pitchers on the list in total is also the, the fewest number of pitchers that we've ever uh, had on one of these lists. Just a couple of trends that jumped out at me. Uh, but let's start with Cespedes. Uh, I think most people know he's the younger half-brother uh, of Ioannis Cespedes. Yoelki is considerably smaller Uh Five foot nine, I think, less power. But yeah, I was, I was. Well, go ahead, go ahead and talk about him first, and then I want, I want to get back uh, and and talk about his size a little bit. But uh, tell us a little bit about Yoelki. So yoelki has been a guy who's been on the, uh, you know, radar forever. I mean, just you know, once his brother, you know, signed with the A's years ago and kind of made a splash in the big leagues. You know, the international community always kind of looks at the family to see who's next. And, and Cespedes was a guy who always competed in these, you know, junior national tournaments. Uh, he was a figure who competed in the, uh, the Caribbean series and the world baseball classics. And immediately the, uh, you know, the comparisons were there and people always liked his skill set. But as with Cubans, they're just a really unique bunch. And as you mentioned, um, there are three, there are some who were on the uh, list last year and for likely signed during the, the upcoming period when they leave Cuba and when they become eligible to, you know, to sign varies. It kind of depends on, you know, when, when they get their paperwork uh, completed, when they defected the country, there's just a really unique element that comes with dealing with Cubans. A lot of these guys played in their professional league, Serie Nacional, that's the professional league in Cuba. That's a top Cuba. That's where hope, top league there. That's where it's like Jose Abreu played, uh, Cespedes, all, you know, a lot of the top players in Cuba played there. So in general, they're just a really unique type of a, a player because, you know, they have this professional experience. They have the uh, national team experience. And a lot of that was people paid attention to when they, they had the opportunity to see the younger Cespedes come up. And I think really people have followed him for the longest time. Uh, when he defected from Cuba last summer, uh, really opened up a lot of eyes, and then he kind of went off the radar. 
Um, I think his brother probably had a lot more of the headlines for um, not being on the field and just different things that happened there uh, with the Mets. But people were really curious. So during that, those six, seven months, he was kind of off the radar. The younger Cespedes really worked out. You know, he gained, you know, 15 pounds of muscle. He revamped his swing. If you look at video, it's almost identical to what his older brother's swing is like. Um, the tools have always been there. And I, th I remember sitting in, you know, the Caribbean series, you know, this tournament that, you know, happens every year at different different countries in Latin America and the Caribbean and, and talking to scouts about, you know, Cespedes. And they really liked his tools. And back then, I wouldn't necessarily call him a slasher, but he wasn't really known for power. I mean, he had a great arm. He could run. Um, there were tons of tools there that scouts had liked, and they had really, you know, seen him and followed him. But I think since he's left Cuba, he's really worked on his strength. He's, you know, what happens a lot of times when Cubans, they leave their island, you know, they come and then they're, and they're exposed to different training methods. They're able, you know, different you know, nutrition, different strategies that make your body better to become a better athlete. And, you know, that's a pretty common thing for Cuban players. And I think that's one of the things that's happens with the younger Cespedes. Um, he really worked on his body um, and people were really, expecting and hoping he would come out and now that he has you know uh now i think people are just waiting on you know the ability to see him in a, a larger showcase uh some people have seen him already um and there's just a lot of anticipation he's just a, an exciting young player um like i said the the cubans are very unique type of player just because they have so much varied experience and that's why, you know, he, we made him our number one um, just because of all the tools, his experience, um, his potential. And, you know, there are just a lot of factors that go in, into that. Just one of the things that I was curious about, and, you know, Jim and I, it's sometimes hard to, you know, when we're doing our draft list, uh, comparing like a high school guy to a college guy, or even when we're working on, on our team minor league lists, how to put like the super young guys into those lists. In looking at this year's list, or any time you have uh, a guy like Cespedes or Leon from Cuba who's a little bit older, you know, how do you stack it up when you have a guy who's 22 uh, versus a kid who's just turning 16? Or like the 16-year-olds, you're hoping they can physically mature into what Cespedes has done. You know, not not height wise, obviously he's it's kind of a different animal that way. But I was just wondering how how much more of a challenge was it this year with this list, given that that huge gap in age. You know, I think Cubans in general. So what we do on our list is uh, anybody who becomes eligible to sign during that next period makes it to the list, and it only it really doesn't matter what your age is as long as you're a prospect. So that's why you know uh, Cespedes is 21, 22 years old, and the uh, most of the other players are, are going to be 16 years old. Uh, there's definitely a challenge um, there. And I think that's where we kind of factor in his experience. You factor in what he's already accomplished. Um, you factor in, you know, conversations with scouts, you conversation, you know, conversations with uh, teams, um, even conversations with, you know, Cespedes people and, and you get a feel for them. It's definitely a, a challenge to compare, and I hear this all the time from, you know, the international community, because they'll, they'll ask, how do you compare a 22-year-old kid to a 16-year-old kid? And, and, and that's, where, that's part of the difficulty, but that's part of the fun. And that's part of where the, the debate comes in. 
Um, what I like to say is, you know, Cespedes, will, he's the best player at his age. And the number two, Wilman Diaz, he's going to be 16 years old. He's say he's the best 16-year-old. Um, I'm not always sure it has to be one or the other, you know, kind of a zero-sum game. This guy just means he's automatically better than everybody else. I mean, I like to celebrate all these guys, but I do think age, experience, all that come into play. Um, there's a track record there with the players like Cespedes. There's track records with the, the Cuban players who've, who've had some success at higher levels, you know, facing what be the equivalent of minor league players or in some cases, you know, whether if they participate in a world baseball classic, they competed against, you know, high level professionals. Um, again, it's fun. And I, and I definitely open to the debate and I definitely like the conversation uh, comparing, you know, the 21 year olds to the 16 year olds. It's, you know, it can be a difficult thing, but, uh, you know, that's kind of our thought process on it. And, um, you know, for me, I just like to celebrate all these guys, but somebody has, you know, there has to be an order. And those are kind of the things that I use to to factor in that order. Jesse, I mean, you always do a great job of of finding out, you know, who's we, we write it in a way, you know, so and so is expected to sign with so and so. These teams and, and players have deals sometimes years in advance. The only player I just scanned through the whole list on the top thirty that you don't announce who the favorite is to sign him is Suspetis. Now you know, and obviously teams, you know, lock themselves into deals. If they've committed to other guys, they don't have money. Who do you, who's in the right, who has the money to, to, to potentially sign him in this period? Who do you, who do you think are the teams that are, are best in position to sign him? You know, that's, that's always a tricky question because um, really the deals are not done until it's signed, sealed and delivered, you know, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's always, uh, there are definitely projections. There are definitely favorites and things look like, you know, they're, teams are leaning a certain way and certain money will be spent, but things happen. You know, things change last minute deals fall through. Uh, people change their mind. Uh, kids get hurt. Just things happen. And so it's hard to project who will be the guy for Cespedes going forward. I think the teams that, you know, some people have mentioned and I've kind of, there's some rumbling on the ground, uh, white Sox cause they have a, a long history of players from Cuba. There's a, a, a long history and, and connections to players. There's, you know, you look at their roster now, uh, Jose Abreu, Yon Moncada, Luis Robert. Um, these guys are, were signed as international signs and then brought through their system and, you know, have made it to the big league. So I guess in some ways you, people automatically look at the White Sox and say there's some kind of pipeline or some type of connection and, you know, that the reality is, you know, talking to several you know, Cuban players over the last decades, two decades or so, you know, as much as money matters, comfort level matters as well. You know, it's not just being able to speak the same language with somebody from the Dominican or Mexico or Venezuela or different, you know, countries that also speak Spanish. But there is some special bond among Cubans who, who really love being around other people who've had shared that shared unique experience because the reality is uh, the Cuban experience, especially for baseball is, and I guess in general is, is unlike a lot of other Latino experience. So uh, they really like to be around other people who walked in their shoes. So I think if you kind of factor in, you know, the, the track record with the white Sox, you factor in some of the money that 
you know, they might have left over in the future. I, I can see why people would make a case for the White Sox being among the teams listed. But again, it's it's really hard to tell at this point. Um, they're just there's just so many unanswered questions. I think uh, got, teams and scouts, they want to get more eyes on him because he's definitely evolved from the player he used to be in the Caribbean series and the World Baseball Classic to the player he is now. So right now they're still in the evaluation process. And the reality is we don't know what that bonus money is going to look like in the future. And we don't know how much, when that money comes, how much flexibility there will be to add or trade away, you know, that, that type of money. So again, it's hard to predict a favorite because um, I really think a teams really want to get their eyes on them. And as we know, everything is in limbo. We're in kind of uncharted territory here. So we're just kind of have to, it's going to be one of those storylines we're going to follow all year and really pay close attention to where is Joel Kistespa is going to go? Where is he going to sign? Um, because uh, people close to him that, you know, they say, he wants to play in the major leagues. He's looking for the quickest path to the major leagues. But that's that's pretty common for a lot of young players. They'll say that I'll sign with a team that's going to give me the quickest chance. Ultimately, money is a factor. So and then you add in maybe there's a Cuban connection. So it, it can be a complicated, but ultimately it's a very personal decision. Um, rarely do I see players turn down the most money. I mean, that's just not doesn't happen very often. But we will just see how it plays out. And I'm really excited and looking forward to see, you know, where Cespedes goes, how these tryouts go, what teams show the most interest and, you know, how he continues to develop. All right. So we, we talked about Cespedes here who, uh, you know, Jesse, you talked about him looking for that quick path to the big leagues. We'll likely be seeing him relatively soon. Uh, let's talk about some of the, some of the kids that, we won't be seeing for a while, um, you know, even stateside, much less in the major leagues. But the next four players on the list, as I mentioned earlier, are four 16-year-old shortstops, two from Venezuela, two from the Dominican Republic, Wilman Diaz, Carlos Colmenares, Armando Cruz, Christian Hernandez. I guess when looking at the tools that we have listed for these guys, uh, Diaz has the highest graded hit tool on this list, uh, even higher than Cespedes. Um, and I guess that is probably the reason that he ranks higher than the other three shortstops right behind him. But they all look pretty similar in terms of their uh, their other tool grades. Their field all have 55 fielding and uh, arm grades. Uh, I believe Cruz has the highest run grade of the bunch. But uh, why don't you talk about that group a little bit? You know, I think in, in Latin America, especially in international scouting, they're, they're looking for players who can play up the middle, specifically, you know, shortstops and center fielders. And they feel like, you know, I think international directors, international scouts, they feel like if you have the, the tool set to play up the middle and your body changes, we can move you to third. We can move you to first. We can move you to a corner outfielder. You know, we can we can kind of move you around the diamond. So these shortstops kind of exhibit that, you know, they have they have the potential to be five tool players in the, in the future. And, and I think, especially when you look at the top 16 year olds, you know, that's what scouts want. That's what they're seeking. They're seeking potential. I mean, it's hard enough to really project what a 16 year old is going to be like in, in two years and three years, but what all these players have in common, you know, is five tool potential, you know, Diaz, 
you know, the sky's the limit. You know, he has the, uh, you know, the present ability to hit, you know, and he has future upside, at, you know, at a premium position with these, as the other guys do. And I think it's the hit ability uh, that scouts really like. Um, you know, I'm talking to different international scouts and no matter what they will say, you know what, Jess, hitters hit. And no matter what situation we can put him in, uh, we can put him in live BP. We can put him against our minor leaguers. We can put him against games against other prospects their age. And the hitters are going to hit. And, you know, Wilma Diaz is one of those guys who's going to hit. And and definitely his hit tool and, and then his combination with everything else he has um, makes him, you know, the top 16-year-old, uh, you know, top player who's going to be 16 to sign on this list. But I think you can also make cases, you know, Carlos uh, Colmenares, the same thing. You can make a, a strong case or Armando, Armando Cruz. You know, people say Cruz could be, you know, the best defender at any position in this class. You know, he's better. He's a better defender at short than, than some are at their position in, in the outfield. And so when you think of them as a whole, what you see is just a talented group of kids who can, you know, run, hit, field, hit for power, hit for, you know, hit for average and and that the sky's the limit with these guys and i think they kind of symbolize and are, are typical of what the international you know scouting community what people in baseball really look for when they're looking at international players they're looking for really athletic guys who have this versatility who can hit who can do everything and then if something happens to their body uh, maybe they get bigger or maybe they don't grow. Maybe we move them around the diamond. So, uh, you know, what you see with the Cruises and Christian Hernandez, our number five, the same thing. I mean, these guys are ju just athletic kids and, you know, the sky's the limit with all these guys. Jesse, uh, one thing that is not on this list is pitching. Um, there's only two guys on the entire top 30, both in the, in the sort of bottom third, obviously that's that's not nothing to to be considered one of the top thirty prospects, uh, you know, internationally. Period. Uh, but it seems like a, a small number, and I know things like this are are, are cyclical. Um, but it, it it seems surprising that there weren't more arms on this list. Right, so our highest ranking pitcher is Norhe Vera. He's he is from Cuba. Uh, he's nineteen years old. And, you know, a right-handed pitcher, and he's, he shows, a, you know, an arsenal of things he can get guys out with. And he is kind of the exceptions in some ways because, you know, talking to international scouts, they'll tell me, you know, projecting a 15, projecting a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid, because they're all, a lot of these are guys are, are throwing in their low to mid-80s. And if they're throwing in their 90s, um, you know, it kind of raises eyebrows because it's just not common to see you know, 14, 15 year old kid throwing in the low nineties. So, so it's very difficult to project what these pitchers are going to be. Some, they don't know if they're, if their bodies have grown enough to where they're going to develop into starters. They don't know if, uh, if these guys can develop into relievers. So in general, there's not a ton of pitchers on our international prospects list, just because they're so hard to, to project what they're going to be like. I think Vera in this case He's a little bit older, so he has that history in Cuba. He's 19 years old. There's a track record there, so it was much easier for scouts to kind of make their conclusion or get an idea of 
who this guy is and what he's going to be just because he's pitched so much. And our other guy on, on the list of Victor Lizarraga from, from Mexico, um, he's 16 years old and he has a history of, of, of pitching in Mexico on in the national tournaments and succeeding. And he's a guy that scouts have paid close attention to. Again, we have him at the bottom of the list at number 30 and at, as highly as you know, some scouts regard him, you know, there's still others who wonder what's he going to be like? Um, is he going to be a starter? Is he going to be a reliever? What's his body going to grow into? And I think when you factor in all those questions and then you put, you match him up against a, a, a shortstop or uh, someone who plays in the middle of the diamond, I think a lot of times the scouts will look towards the other guy. They'll, they'll look away from the pitcher because they might feel that, Hey, maybe there's, more pitchers available on the market. Maybe we can sign him at a later time. Um, there are more questions about how they're going to develop. And there's probably, there's questions still exist about a 16-year-old center fielder or a 16-year-old shortstop, but there might be less questions about that. Again, um, projecting you know, what a 16-year-old kid is going to be and what he's going to look like uh, is a difficult task. You know, I give a lot of credit to the international directors, scouts, and everybody who kind of works in that, you know, that part of baseball, you know, for investing in these players, you know, investing their money, investing their time to these guys and trying to project what they're going to be. Cause the reality is a lot of these guys will be the future stars of the game, but we just don't know which one it's going to be. So looking at the overall uh, composition of this list, uh, Jesse talked earlier about, um, players playing the premium shortstop position. There are 19 shortstops on this year's list, which is the most uh, we've ever had. It's the most we've ever had at any position uh, on one list. In fact, there are only four different positions uh, accounted for on this list. There are two catchers, the Venezuelan catchers we talked about earlier, 19 shortstops, uh, the two pitchers that we talked about, both right-handers, and then seven outfielders. Um, so that, that list is up uh, as of last night at MLBpipeline.com. Uh, go check that out. And Jesse, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, greatly appreciate all the time that uh, you put into this and appreciate your time this afternoon. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, everybody be safe and stay healthy. Hope to see you guys soon. You too, Jesse. Thanks. All right. So let's turn our attention from the incoming international prospects to the incoming domestic prospects and talk about the draft. So uh, guys, as is, as is the case with the international scene, uh, everything's kind of up in the air due to the coronavirus pandemic. And the same is true with the draft, but it's, we're starting to get a little bit uh, more focus here. It sounds like at least we're, we know, well, we don't know, but it's, it's sounding like the timing is going to be pretty similar to uh what it was originally scheduled to be, right? Right. Yeah. June. The the, the word is June tenth. Uh, we were hearing that a lot. Sort of the the rumors were were getting louder that the, they were going to pick June tenth, which is you know close to the the originally scheduled draft date. That's all we know at this point, and even that's not been uh, you know confirmed by anyone in Major League Baseball. But you know the we still don't know. Uh, how many rounds they might, you know, might do at the top? Are they going to split it over two days? How many rounds are there going to be total? And 
Jim, I don't, you know, I'm pretty sure you probably were getting a lot of the same, but I think, you know, the date is nice to have, but what scouting staffs really want to know is how many rounds there are going to be because it's virtually impossible to line up a draft board. You can't have conversations with, with agents about signability, uh, any of those things without knowing how many rounds this, this draft is going to be. No, exactly. I mean, the difference between a five-round draft and a 10-round draft is roughly a million dollars per team in their bonus pool, which makes a big difference. Um, the strategies with which you would attack the draft would be different. You know, I, I do think that if whether it's five rounds or 10 rounds, the draft will resemble what a normal 40-round draft would be in those rounds. You know, like I think if we have a five-round draft, I don't think you're going to see college seniors going in the fifth round to make money for bonus pools. Um, but I think if we have a 10-round draft, you, you will see the college senior palooza in, in, in rounds eight through 10 as teams try to move some money around. I mean, it's you're right. I mean, we've both been, been working on, on various projects, and I've had you know a lot of conversations and emails the last couple of days with, with a bunch of people involved with the draft, not about the timing. But several of them have said to me, you know, looks like June 10th. You think you can count on June 10th. Like they're getting that sense, even though it's not official, there's no announcement. Just from in conversations, I guess, with MLB officials that it will be June 10th. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're interested in rounds, too. I, I even heard a team today I talked to said that they'd even heard a talk that there's discussion that you might have a 15-round draft, which I hadn't heard. I, I'd heard no more than 10. Um, we know it's going to be, you know, it can't be fewer than five. Um, you know, there's – I had a team tell me, also, that there's may potential that, you know, maybe it's only five-round draft, but instead of this, you know, any player who's not drafted can only sign for $20,000, uh, you know, maybe each team can sign two guys for 100 and two guys for 50 and, you know, may, you know maybe two guys for 75, that there might be, you know, different levels of, of what you can pay a, a handful of free agents. So, yeah, they're, you know, teams have been spending all the downtime. Uh, you know, they haven't been just sitting around. They've been trying to get as organized so they can be as ready as possible and, you know, when it's time to draft and, and, and get some stuff out of the way. But you really can't do, you know, really extensive planning on what exactly you might do with your picks until you know how many picks you're actually going to have. So there was there was talk about the draft potentially being held later in, in July, and I think it even there have been discussion about it being even later than that. What are the major differences – with it happening as originally scheduled as opposed to later on in the summer? I, I don't think there's any, to be honest with you. You, you, you have the same amount of looks. I, I mean, I've heard two different reasons as to why they were looking to maybe have the draft in late July or, or even August, you know, or they were the agreement now I mean, is no later than July 20th. One was the hope that if things got more back to normal, you, I don't think we were ever going to have combines. You were ever going to get enough of the best players to attend, but that you might have a situation where, you know, you pick a player, well, Nick Bitsko, you know, Pennsylvania kid who reclassified who nobody got to see in a game this spring, that maybe, you know, Nick Bitsko can have a workout, you know, throw a bullpen and you can socially distance, you know, each team sends one representative, you know, and can check him out. That you get to see guys in action. And the other thing I heard was that it was more, so the teams would be able to gather at least small groups of club officials together in the same room whenever the draft is. And I just think, uh, you know, I don't know why, I don't know why the decision is made for June 10th, but I don't think either of those things is necessarily or was necessarily going to happen. And maybe that's why they just said, let's just do June 10th. Yeah. I mean, I think all that's, that's true. I, mean, I even talked to uh, a scouting director last week who was saying that, 
uh, he has marveled sort of how nimbly his, you know, organization and and others have adapted to sort of this new normal of, of doing business. And he, he actually thinks it's going to change how scouting staff do things in the future. You know, it used to be that they would, you know, often fly a, a whole lot of scouts in uh, for, for meetings. And, uh, you know, even when it's safe to do so, they may decide that this is much more efficient. You don't have to scout off the road necessarily. You could have a big Zoom meeting. Uh, you could have area scouts from different areas talking to each other and, and things of that nature. <clears throat> and I think that, um, you know, to, to tack on to what you know, was saying is that I think there probably was a realization that the need to gather together, which was one of the, you know, one of those variables that Jim talked about, not as, not as necessary. People are making, making do. They're on Zoom calls every day. They've been going through it. You know, they've been talking over players and some ways in a obviously more thorough fashion because no one's going out and seeing the players. Uh, but I think once that, that box was checked off, that was one less thing to, to worry about in, in terms of having to, to push it back further. So we still don't know how many rounds and Jonathan, you, you said that's one of the, is probably the most important thing that the, that the teams need to know in order to put their draft boards together. Um, and Jim hearing potentially more than 10 rounds, which is not something we've heard a lot of talk about. Uh, Jonathan, you did a one round draft, uh, our first full first round mock draft uh, of the 2020 draft. Um, we started a few years ago doing a, a much too early mock draft. Uh, at the conclusion of the previous year's draft, we look ahead to the next year's draft and, and just do a top 10, which is more or less just a way of looking at uh, 10 of the bigger names uh, that we know are, are going to be of interest in the upcoming year. And, and, you know, actually trying to pin those to a team at that point is, is silly, but it's a, it's a fun way to do it. Um, and then we do another one when we put out uh, the top 100 list in December, but this is the first one where we look at the full first round and obviously um, you know, Jonathan's not putting his hundred percent guarantee uh, stamp on this, but you are starting to get more of an idea of, of where players might slot in. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this first first uh, full mock draft. Yeah, sure. And, and not to like drill down and get like too meta on the process, but <clears throat> often for this first one, you know, you, you don't go too nuts. Uh, especially since there's so much unknown. But even if this were a regular year, this sort of first try at the you know full, first full round, I'm not like doubling and tripling back on teams at the bottom of the first round because it's just it's impossible to know, and even more so now with with, with all the uncertainty about what what's happening when. So at a certain point in time, you start just trying to, you know, oh, I'm hearing that this player is being talked about at the back end of the first round. And here's a team that historically is like that kind of player. So there's some of that. Uh, the top is starting to take shape. It looked very similar uh, or exactly the, the same uh, as the top of our rankings. That's a little rare, but I feel like the last couple of years, the, the sort of the top, there's a, a top group that cements itself. And, you know, like you said, I'm not guaranteeing that, Spencer Torkelson, Austin Martin, Asa Lacey, Emerson Hancock, and Nick Gonzalez are going to go top five. Uh, but I think those five will be in the top five, you know, even if uh, even if it's in a, in a different order. 
Are you guaranteeing that? Is that 100% guaranteed, top five? Is that what I'm you're saying? not 100% guaranteeing it because What that percentage are you giving us? Cool. What percentage are you giving us, John? I'm going to say 60% that those five go in the top five. Okay. I was going to say it was interesting, Jason. I went back to look at my – I did the way-too-early mock last June right after last year's draft ended. And the most striking thing to me looking at it <laughs> is that the team that was picking ninth at that time would have been the Washington Nationals. Um because they were off to such a bad start and they wound up winning the world series, which is, wow. it's crazy looking that we had them as the number nine pick at, at that point of the season. Um, you know, I, I've sensed the same thing from talking to Jonathan. I, I think one of the things that's good, it's again, none of this stuff is cemented. I think most people feel like the tigers will take Spencer Torkelson at number one. Um, I think the order of two through five would be a little bit, you know, it, it's more fluid, than Torkelson at one, I think would be fair to say, Jonathan. Yep. Yes, um, I would agree with that. The interesting thing that's going to come into play a little bit for where, say, Asa Lacey and Emerson Hancock, the two pitchers go, is that we, we've talked about this before. The, the, the pitching, the college pitching this year's draft is so deep, especially compared to last year when it was terrible, that it, you, you might be – like let's say Torkelson goes one and Austin Martin goes two. The Marlins and Royals – and I'm not saying people all have our draft board. But we have Lacey third, Hancock fourth, Gonzalez fifth on our, the way we line guys up. That if you're the Marlins to Royals, you may want to consider maybe you take Nick Gonzalez at three because you're going to still get a better than usual college pitcher if you wanted with your second pick, whereas you wouldn't get a position player of the same quality as Nick Gonzalez. So that'll be interesting. And then I'd say if there's a guy who cracks the top five, who's not on the top five on our list right now, I think it would be Max Meyer who, you know, Jonathan, you had number six, huh. so it's not exactly, I, yeah. but I, I do think Zach Veen, Zach yeah. Veen also could, could crack the top five. I don't think Zach Veen's going top five. I'm, I'm not going to go hundred percent, but I don't think that's going to happen. But I, I do think Max Meyer could be very close to Lacey and Hancock for some teams. So I, I think if, I think he's the, the best bet to, to maybe jump in there. Um, which is interesting. Who is the, uh, not reach, but who is the lowest ranked player, Jonathan, on our list who you put in the first round? Uh, I don't have the ranks in front of me, but I'm guessing that it's Carson Tucker. Okay. I don't remember. We had, I don't remember where we had Justin Foscue. Um, yeah, he, we moved Foscue into like, I think the bottom of the first round, like around 29th or something. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, then it'd be Carson Tucker. I snuck into the back of the end of the first round. And that was definitely, uh, it's not like I'm hearing the Yankees are on him, although they, you know, they, they, they like know, their high school shortstops. They do like their high school shortstops. So that's not completely out of the question. What I was hearing from several people was that <clears throat> his name was starting to pop up in the back end of the first round conversations, kind of like his brother Cole, uh, who's, you know, snuck into to the first round somewhat surprisingly on draft day. And, you know, he is definitely a beneficiary of where he lives uh, you know, he was in Arizona during spring training and was really, really good at the start of the season before things got shut down. And because people were coming in and out of spring training, not to mention being able to double up by seeing a high school game and then, say, going to see Arizona State with their many, many draft eligible players, uh, he got seen by a lot of decision makers and was much better than he was over the summer and he was good over the summer and he, he took a, a very large step forward in terms of proving he can play shortstop in terms of impacting the baseball at the plate so that's why i kind of snuck him in 
and into into the back end. And then I think the only other one that was like really going back up to the top, the guy who I think is is going to be hard to place is Garrett Mitchell. Um, tools wise, he belongs you know up near the top. Uh, you know, like if if you're just doing based on pure tools, you can make an argument that he should go before Nick Gonzalez. Um, but he's had some injuries. He hadn't really hit for power until the start of this spring, although it's clearly in there. And then, you know, the, the thing that people don't want to talk about too much because you don't want to be unfair is that he has type 1 diabetes. And every team needs to answer the question of whether or not they think he can hold up over the course of a, ver a very long major league season. And that made him a little bit of a wild card for me in this first go around, Jim, in terms of trying to figure out where 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 to put him at it to fall too far but if you told me that Garrett Mitchell would end up going in the late teens early 20s that wouldn't shock me completely no it's that, that's one that's really hard to pin down and it's not something that's one that your teams are I think going to be less likely to discuss with the media you know it's one thing if you're talking about a guy's arm injury and it's another if you're talking about a medical condition. I mean, we all know he has type 1 diabetes, not a secret. But, like, I just – I don't have any great sense of, okay, you know, how far does that push him down the list as to where he might go otherwise. Um, and I agree. I mean, it's if – I mean, I think he's, what, 6 on our list, 10th in your mock draft. I bet he goes closer to 10 than 6, and he could go a little bit lower than that too. Yeah, he was, he was, he was one that was really kind of – Tough for me, mostly because you know no one's committing to anything right now. But he, he was he was a tricky one. Yeah, yeah, I would think Nick Bitsko is probably a tricky one too. You know, because he reclassified. Yeah. You know, he looked great for three innings at East Coast Pro last year, and he had a bullpen this spring, and that's it. And like, I don't, I don't think he's necessarily going to come cheap. Um, you know, I, I don't think people know signability, but just I was talking to one team that was trying to read the tea leaves a little bit, and they felt like like his guys were trying to position him as maybe the most elite arm in this draft, which doesn't scream, hey, I'm going to sign for slot in the teens. Um, and I don't know what you do with that guy. I mean, I my, my guess on him, and this is just guessing, and this is not in any way like, oh, I can't believe you had him at 14. My guess is, is that he, and this is just speculation, but my guess is he falls because he's a high price tag and some team that picks, that takes him with their second pick and finds a way to pay him. Like, you know, and, I, and I'm just making this part up. We're not making this part up. I was saying, like, the Orioles pick second. They have a huge bonus pool, and they pick 30th, and they pick 39th. You know, if they like Nick Bitsko, I don't know that they do or don't, but if they like Nick Bitsko, you know, maybe they try to get him down to 30 and, and pay him exorbitantly and, you know, and then go on with the rest of their draft. You know, they're, they're probably in better position to do that than just about anybody. And some of that, again, goes back to, knowing whether or not it's five or 10 rounds. Uh, there are teams that could still do it in a five round draft. It might open up a little bit more and you might feel you have more flexibility with those, with those extra rounds to, to save money on, to, to pay somebody like that. So we'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I did, you know, uh, you know, the Padres picking in the top 10 at eight were kind of the perfect place to put that first high school arm because they're not afraid of doing things like that. You know, I give them Mick Abel from Oregon uh, but I did mention Bitsko there, one, because I've heard his name uh, there a, a, a little bit, uh, again, with the it's way too early to know caveat. But I could see them doing something like that. And then, if, you know, if they take Nick Bitsko at eight, they, you know, maybe he signs for slightly below slot. 
if he goes in the top 10. So, you know, that makes it a little more interesting where the Padres and the, and the Padres do have a, um, I think they have a comp, uh, a comp round a pick. So they do have some flexibility up top. Yeah, they do. They'd be able to you know, the, the Royals also picked 32 and 41 after picking, after picking four. So they'd have some a chance to do something there too. Right. All right, guys, let me spring a question on you here that kind of ties in uh, to, to our two topics of conversation on this episode. Uh, we talked about the international list, talking about the draft now. The number one player on the international list, Yoelki Cespedes, and I know this is going to be somewhat tough for you guys because you haven't, uh, you haven't talked to people a whole lot about him probably, and Jesse's done most of the work on him. But if Yoelki Cespedes was in this draft class, do you have any feel for where he might where he might go in the draft? Well, that's interesting. Well, I'll, t- I'll take the first crack, and then Jonathan can correct me if need be. I, I don't. I, I think he'd go six to fifteen. Like, like you don't have the track record. I, I don't think he'd go in the first five guys. I just don't think you have the track record of a Torkelson or a Martin or Lacey or Hancock and Gonzalez. And then it's you know if you're talking about outfielders. You know, Garrett Mitchell has a diabetes we discussed, but, you know, Heston Kerstad's got a pretty good track record of playing very well in the SEC. Even Austin Hendrick, who's only 18, you know, or Robert Hassel. I mean, Robert Hassel's got, you know, the best pure hitter in the high school class. You know, Austin Hendrick's one of the top two power hitters. You know, him and Blaze Jordan, you know, Blaze probably has more raw. Hendrick might have the most usable power uh, in this high school class. And, and I think maybe you have a better comfort level. So for me... I think he'd be in that six to fifteen range. I think that's probably right. Um, you know, it, it, maybe he belongs. You know, the, the teams that would be strongly considering Garrett Mitchell and Heston Kirstad might be considering. Uh, you know, Spedas. You know, because of the tools. Um, so, so somewhere in that ten, eleven, twelve range, I think. Um, you know, I, if I were to do a mock and put him in, I would put him at 12 to the Reds, uh, especially given uh, Cincinnati's uh, history of being very aggressive in uh, acquiring talent from Cuba. All right, guys. Uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. We're getting closer and closer to the draft. More and more draft talk to come on upcoming podcasts, and we will talk to you all next week. <laughs>